Well, last Lord's Day, we had our third installment in our study of the word Bible in the name Sovereign Grace Bible Church. And in particular, in our study last time, we considered the power of God's word in combating evil, along with the corollary idea of the power of God's word to shame this world's foolishness. And both, again, are related concepts. But both of these ideas are really distinguishable as we search the scriptures. We see that we are repeatedly reminded of the power and the sufficiency of God's word in combating evil. And so in order to study this and examine this further, we looked in particular at Ephesians 6, where the Apostle Paul talks about the full armor of God. And here it is that he talks about how we are to have our loins girded with the belt of truth. We're to take up the breastplate of righteousness. We're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we're to engage in all prayer, praying at all times. And I would submit to you that this is a part of our armament and battle strategy on a daily basis. Last time we considered the fact that of this full armor of God, there are three components that are more specifically related to the truth of God, to the word of God, the belt of truth, the gospel itself, the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And a part of what we considered last time is the fact that The fact that we are told to take up this sword means that we indeed have a license to bear this weapon and use it. And again, it's not a physical weapon that we're using to engage in a physical battle, but it is a spiritual weapon with which we engage in a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle against the forces of evil and darkness in this world. And why is this such an important thing to remember? I said this from the very beginning, even um, as I was introducing um, the the preaching ministry here and beginning my ministry here. One of the first things I I mentioned, and I think I even mentioned, mentioned it last year when I was visiting, we are at war. And we have to understand that. The moment we lose sight of the fact that we're on a battlefield is a very dangerous moment for our own souls. Thus, when we looked at John 17, remember Jesus said this, he says, I do not ask, praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. How many times have you wanted to just be taken out of the world? Jesus says, I'm not asking for that. But to keep them. Remember the word tereo. Keep, protect, Guard them from the evil one. And then he prays in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's our protection. There's our safety. In the midst of a a world in which we are indeed at war, we have the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which sanctifies us. And it is that piece of armor that we are to use in our daily battle against evil. The corollary idea to this, then, is, was the second point of our study last time. And there we talked about the power of God's word to shame this world's foolishness. And that point is there because 
God promises to shame and destroy the wisdom of the wise. Paul, when he talks about the inferiority and foolishness of worldly wisdom, quotes Isaiah 29 and verse 14 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19, where God promises, when you think of all the promises, consider this as being a part of his promise, God promises, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is something that God has vowed to do. He does it on a daily basis through the gospel. And in the final judgment, he will ultimately do that regarding all those who have opposed him throughout this life. And so we looked at Romans chapter 1. And we looked at the premise of that statement where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And how powerful is this gospel? How powerful is the word of God? Well, it's powerful enough to enable us to confront a world that is given over to its depravity, the likes of which is described in verses 18 through 32 Over and over and over again, the apostle describes the remarkable darkness of human sin and and depravity. And when you read through the fullness of that chapter, you might get a little intimidated when you look at everything that is disclosed there. But we must not be intimidated. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we bear the sword of the spirit as we engage this world. And so... This is why we then concluded at the end of the sermon that we need to, first of all, rely on the power of God in view of all that he has supplied. We're to engage this world with boldness, not a boldness that's vested in ourselves, but a boldness that is rooted in our God. And we're also to, we're also to have humility as we do so. Knowing that if it were not for the grace of God, we wouldn't have the truth of God. If it were not for God opening the eyes of our hearts, we too would be blind and in a state of darkness where everybody else is. Now, this brings us yet to another concept and consideration when we think about the scriptures. When we think about the word of God, there is a very important principle that we need to consider that I believe is very clear very clearly stated in the word of God, and it is this. The Bible possesses a very Christ-centered emphasis. Now, to say that the Bible is Christ-centered does not mean that it is Christ-centered to the exclusion of the revelation of the Trinity or that it somehow an idea that we're, where we talk about the centrality of Christ to the neglect of the Father and the Holy Spirit. What I'm talking about is what Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14. Remember, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. Calvin says it this way. God is not to be sought out 
in his unsearchable height, for he dwells in light that is inaccessible, 1 Timothy 6.16, but is to be known by us insofar as he manifests himself in Christ. Or to quote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If it were not for Christ, for the revelation of his glory, for his work on the cross, and his shed blood, there would be no sense in which we could know God at all. But we know the Father, we see the glory of the Father as we behold the glory of Christ. We know and comprehend the Godhead as we behold the glory of Christ. You have a hymn in your bulletin. We're not going to sing it now. But the third verse of this hymn, which is titled, Blessed Jesus at Your Word, which, by the way, I think is a very excellent hymn as a call to worship because it it reminds us of the fact that we go to the Word of God to see the glory of Christ and ultimately the the glory of the Godhead through him, But verse 3 says this, Glorious Lord, yourself impart, light of light from God proceeding. Open now our ears and heart. Help us by your Spirit's pleading. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And every time we open the pages of Holy Writ, this is exactly what we're doing. We are seeing the glory of Christ. And as we behold the glory of Christ, we see the glory of the Father. We ultimately see the glory of the Godhead. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I like this hymn. Because it talks about the centrality of Christ in our understanding the word. But then it says this in verse 4, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Anytime I sing a hymn that has a Trinitarian conclusion, I'm interested And this is one of those hymns. It has a Trinitarian conclusion. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, praise to you in adoration. Grant that we, your word, may trust and obtain true consolation. Have you ever had someone try to give you consolation, to try to give you encouragement, apart from the wisdom of Scripture? It's a very empty experience, isn't it? I've had unbelievers try to give me a word of encouragement, but it's sad because they don't have the capacity or the means by which to give a word of consolation because they don't have the wisdom of God. But by the grace of God, we have this. We have the scriptures. We have new eyes to see and ears to hear the very revelation that God has given to us. And again, I say to you, brethren, every time we open the pages of Holy Writ, We behold the glory of Christ, and we behold the glory of the Godhead through him. This principle I want us to consider and explore, and this is just going to be a sampling here this morning. There's so much that we could say about this, and actually I'm going to say a little bit more about this next Lord's Day since we're going to be observing the Lord's table. But the first thing I want us to consider very simply this morning is this is that we behold the mercy of God 
through the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we consider Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, one of the first words we ought to think of is the word mercy. Mercy. How merciful it is, how gracious it is of God that he would reveal himself to us at all in such a way that we are not destroyed in the process. What kind and merciful condescension it is that he has revealed himself, his glory, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second idea, the second thought that we see in Scripture that we'll cover here this morning is this, is that when we go to the Scriptures, we behold the justice of God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mercy, justice. Both things are revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ, And we have a duty and a responsibility to see to it that as we study the scriptures, we see all of these things. And there's so much more, of course. But I just want to cover these two principles here this morning. And then at the end, we'll consider some of the truths, how these truths impact the church's life and mission. But let's first consider how it is that we behold the mercy of God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, The text that uh, we started off with here this morning was John chapter 1 and verse 18. If you haven't turned there already, let me ask you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The apostle John says this. He says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now the thrust of John 1 is this wonderful idea of the fact that he, the Son, has explained him, the Father. That's the thrust, that's the emphasis But I want you to consider the premise of that statement in verse 18. The premise of that statement is this. He says, no one has seen God at any time. No one. That's a remarkable statement. You have to ask the question, why is he beginning with that? Why not just rush into the statement of the fact that he, the son, has revealed the father, has explained the father, I believe that when John reminds us of the fact that no one has seen God at any time, he's reminding us of a a very important principle. It's the very principle that Paul articulated when writing to Timothy, when he said in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, he says that the Lord alone possesses immortality and dwells in what kind of light? My translation has the word unapproachable. The Lord alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be the be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, he says. This is the same point in principle that John is stipulating. No one has seen God at any time Paul says, no man has seen God or can see him. 
The point is simply this. No man has seen God in the fullness of his glory. And I say fullness of his glory because this is really the distinctive idea that I think is inherent in 1 John 118 and 1 Timothy 6.16. And I'll just say it this way. If any sinful creature were to be exposed to the fullness of God's glory, they'd be dead. They wouldn't be able to survive the experience. And I'm not saying that as some sort of a guesstimate of my own thought and opinion. It is God who said to Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And if I could paraphrase the idea here, the full idea of what the Lord is saying to Moses is, is you can't see the fullness of my glory. If you were to be exposed to the fullness of my glory, you would not survive the experience. Had Moses been exposed to the fullness of God's glory, beholding the face of the holy God, he would have perished in the moment. By the way, I doubt that Moses thought that there was anything wrong with his petition when he cried out to God, Lord, Lord, show me your glory. But God, out of his mercy, said, no, I'm not going to show you the fullness of my glory. How many times does God answer our prayers with a no? And we may feel disappointed, but we don't really understand God is really doing what's best for us just as he did with Moses. Moses petitioned to see the the glory of God, but God ended up showing him really a portion of his glory. A portion of his glory. A portion by which he could actually survive the experience. Because then the Lord said in Exodus chapter 33, he said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. All this language of God's hand, his back and his face, all these Anthropomorphic expressions are really designed to help us to understand that God mercifully chose to show Moses a portion of his glory, but the fullness of his glory, he did not show him. Because as God said, no man can see me and live. Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6. And became as a dead man declaring judgment upon himself where he said, woe is me for I am ruined. John in in the apocalypse, he saw the, the, the glory of Christ and fell as a dead man. This is what happens to human beings when they see the glory of God. But God mercifully reveals his glory in a way that we can survive the experience. He did it with Moses. He did it with Isaiah. He did it with the apostle John. He does it centrally through Christ. Brethren, the thing that we have to understand is is that the disciples beheld the glory of the Father as they beheld the glory of Christ, and they survived. No man has seen God at any time. 
not the fullness of his glory, not the extent to which God said, no man can see me and live, but he has mercifully and in in his great condescension, he has revealed his glory in Christ. And this is a revelation of his glory that can be survived. And it is a revelation of, of his glory that is sufficient for us to know the beauty and the glory of the Godhead. Now I've started in verse 18 of John, John chapter 1. But think about the fullness and the thrust of his argument from the beginning of that chapter up to verse 18. John introduces us to Christ in a way that is different from the other Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, we begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Matthew, we begin with the genealogy that goes back to our father, uh, the father of faith, Abraham. And then we go to the Gospel of Luke. He goes all the way back to Adam. But we get to the Gospel of John. And we go all the way back to the event of creation and before that. All the way into eternity in order to behold the glory of Christ. And so he uses this remarkable and familiar expression, in the beginning was the word. What's familiar? Well, the expression in the beginning. We hear those words, immediately we go to John, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But again, John is going before that, He's going to the antecedent moment in eternity where he shows us the glory of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now there's a distinction between this verse that must be noted and the language of in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Again, when we go to Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? That God in time created the heavens and the earth. When, it's, when, when it speaks of his work of creation, there is a, a cal-perfect verb that is used in the verb bara to speak of God's creating the heavens and the earth. It was a, an event that we speak of as a historic event. We can look at the timeline and see, well, this is where time began. This is where the, the universe began, when God created the heavens and the earth. But when it speaks of the word, the the, the son of God, the verb that is used there is not a perfect verb, but what is called an imperfect verb. Here, the imperfect verb speaks of the idea of ongoing action. And in this case, it's ongoing action in a non-temporal sphere that is in, in eternity. In other words, you could, reach, you could translate this, the, the verb ain, which is the, the, the linking verb that is in the imperfect form, you could say that the, in the beginning was perpetually the word. And the word was perpetually with God, and the word was perpetually God. And the anarthrous use of the word theos speaks of the fact that the, the, the word was, by the very essence and nature, deity himself. That's a conversation for another time. But a very important theological statement in and of itself. What we have here, what we have here is a description of the Son of God whereby he is called the Word. And what is the indication of that identity? 
It is this. It is that God is a revealer of his glory. God created language, and he communicates his glory through language and through, ultimately, the one who became flesh, who is called the Word. This, then, is the progression of John's argument. God, who is a revealer of his glory, the one who created language, has revealed himself ultimately through the, the, the eternal word. And so he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that he uses there for the word dwell or dwelt is the word skenao. This is the very word that is used in the Old Testament to speak of the idea of a tabernacle, particularly the tent of meeting that was, that was, um, that was uh, made in order to have a, a place in which Moses spoke to God and the glory of God was manifested to the people by the pillar of cloud. And so John is saying very clearly that the word tabernacled among us in a way that is far greater than the glory of God manifested to the nation of Israel in the tent of meeting, here we see that Jesus Christ, through the flesh, who became flesh, dwelt among us. And the very glory of God, we beheld glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In all of this, we see that God is a revealer of his glory, but mark this. He reveals himself to us graciously and mercifully and in a way that we can comprehend and survive. Because remember what the Lord said to Moses, no one can see me and live. But when we look at the glory of Christ, we behold the glory of the Father. Now look with me again at verse 18. John says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. And by the way, that expression, in the bosom of the Father, speaks of the intimacy of the Father and the Son, which is already conveyed in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was proston theon, face to face with God the Father in all of eternity. And here he is described as being in the bosom of the Father, again speaking of the intimacy of the relationship of the Father and the Son that has existed for all of eternity. But then he says of Christ, he has explained him. Jesus Christ has explained him, the Father. That word that he uses there is the word exegesato. Exegesato, which means to explain something, to give an interpretation or expansion and explanation of something. It, it is the word that we use when I talk about exegesis or we talk about biblical exegesis. When I'm preaching, I'm seeking to exegete the word, to give the plain meaning and connotation of what is there in the text. 
But when a pastor does that, there's a degree of imperfection in the entire process. But when we say that Jesus is the exegesis of the Father, there is no imperfection and no corruption there. None whatsoever. Christ not only conveys the glory of the Father through the spoken word, but by his perfect, impeccable, and holy life. Every facet of his life, being, and message perfectly revealed the glory of God. And this is why Jesus said to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Without mitigation, without corruption, without any diminishment. And this is so similar to that remarkable beginning in the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews writes to his audience and says this, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world... And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Here we go again. You look at Christ, and what do we know? What do we see? We know that he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's own nature. You know, it's amazing to me. Sometimes some of the smallest words in the Bible are some of the most important words in the Bible. It's called a linking verb, a linking verb. When it says that he, Jesus, is the radiance, the word is there, is what's called a linking verb. And it's telling us about the very essence and nature of Christ. He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And here... The linking verb is what is called a present active participle, which means that Jesus isn't occasionally the exact representation of the Father's nature and the radiance of his glory, but that he is, again, perpetually that, just like John 1.1. He always ever has been this and ever will be the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's own nature, such that when you look at Christ, you see the glory of the Father. Brethren, this is beautiful beyond measure. Our need for Christ exceeds our understanding. Without him, we are blind. Without his redemption, we're dead. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the Christocentric nature of God's divine revelation. No man can see him in the fullness of his glory and live. But he has revealed his glory in a gracious, merciful, and condescending manner. And that revelation ultimately we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Such that as we look at him, we see the glory of God the Father. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. And he is, in fact, the very exegesis of the Father. Now, this brings us to the next point. 
All of this is really surveying the concept of the fact that God has mercifully revealed himself in the person and work of Christ. But there's this other side of the coin. As we go to the word of God, we also see the justice of God, not just the mercy of God, but the justice of God revealed in the person and work of Christ. And I would direct you to, once again, Hebrews chapter 1. And if you haven't turned there already, let me ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. I really do feel like a Reformed Baptist right now. Taking the jacket off. Look with me at this text one more time. I don't want us to miss the profundity and the depth of what is here. Again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then he says this. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now don't miss what's just been stipulated there. He talks about this moment in time when Jesus made purification of sins. And then he talks about the fact that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As soon as you read those two statements, this brings to bear the reality of Christ's priestly work as the one who served according to the order of Melchizedek as our great high priest. He made purification of sins And then he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the language of Psalm 110 and verse 1 and verse 4. The author of Hebrews is bringing us to the text of Psalm 110. And why is this so important? It's important because it showcases for us the beauty and the glory of Christ. Keep in mind who this book is for. The author of Hebrews wrote this book for a people who were deeply afflicted and challenged. They were suffering persecution, brethren, in a way that we would not understand in this day. Many were being subjected to public shame, the author of Hebrews reminds us. Many of them had their property confiscated. And many suffered under not just Roman secular persecution, but also Jewish religious persecution and even familial persecution. I say that because imagine living in an environment and world in which you are considered to be a heretic by your own community, the Jewish people, your own kinsmen according to the flesh. That means you're alienated from family members. That means you're alienated from the religious community of the Jews. And that also means that as Rome was siding with the Jews for the most part, that you were also then an enemy of the state by the standards of Rome. One, two, three different layers of persecution that they faced. So how do you encourage a people who is afflicted like this? You know what you do? You show them 
the beauty and the glory of the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will bring justice to this world someday. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does. To a people who cried out for justice, the author of Hebrews turned their gaze at the one who is exalted in the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and reminds them that justice is coming. Psalm 110 begins with the declaration of the just judgment of the Messiah. It begins with the Lord saying, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And then it says this in verse 5, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. The enemies of Christ, they'll be made a footstool for his feet. The enemies of Christ, they'll be shattered in the day of his wrath. And he will judge among the nations. This is the very thing that Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 25. Brethren, what is remarkable about the quotation of Psalm 110 in Hebrews 1 is this. When you have a persecuted people who are having their rights taken away from them, who are having their property taken away from them, who are having their own sense of public dignity stolen from them and in the public shaming of them, what is one of the messages that that afflicted people need to remember? There is justice, but it's not necessarily in this world by the standards of men. But there is one who is just, and he will bring just. And the reason why we need to remember this lesson is, is that it's not for us to try to bring vengeance against the unjust. There is something within our nature that has a desire to seek vengeance against those who cause us harm. When we sense an injustice against us, we are oftentimes tempted to take things into our own hands and imagine that we can settle the score and call it justice. Paul in Romans chapter 12 forbids us from doing such a thing. He reminds us that there is one who has a prerogative of vengeance and it's not any one of us. Vengeance is his. This is why he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32 in Romans 12, where the Lord says in Deuteronomy 32, he says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He'll achieve that. The Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, remaining bond or free. In a great sense, this is a part of the message of the author of Hebrews. He wants his readers to understand there is justice, but you're not going to find it among men. But we do find it in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he warns his readers, especially those fence-sitting individuals who claim to be Christians but never really truly place their faith and trust in Christ, he warns them, it's not enough to play religion. It's not enough to meet with the assembly of God's people and just act like as if you're a member of the crowd and, and imagine that you're somehow a part of the community of God's people thereby. So for those who would forsake the gospel, he warns them in chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape from what? Well, you go back to chapter 1, and who is he talking about? The one who will shatter kings in his wrath, and the one who will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. How do you escape from that? How do you escape from a God who is going to bring that kind of justice if you take the gospel and cast it aside as an irrelevance? The answer is there is no escaping that wrath, that justice. And it is a wrath and a justice that will come by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who would neglect God's offer of salvation, the author of Hebrews then says in chapter 10, how, sh- how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Don't neglect this salvation. Don't neglect the gospel. Don't neglect Christ. He alone is your hope. And not only is the mercy of God revealed in the person and work of of Jesus Christ, but his justice is revealed as well. So when we open the pages of Holy Writ, we find a beautiful message of justice The fact that the just wrath of God was poured upon the Son of God as our priestly king of righteousness who died for his own sheep in their stead. That is justice. Our sins were placed upon him and the wrath of God was poured upon the Savior whereby he bore our wrath, bore the the justice and the judgment that we ourselves did deserve. But if you neglect him and reject him, All that is left for those who reject Christ, who trample him underfoot, all that is left is the justice of God, the judgment of God. Brethren, every time we hear a message and a discussion, and I'm sure you're treated to this on a regular basis, I I hear it all the time. People are talking about social justice, and they're talking about the injustices of Society and, and listen, there are injustices in society. There always have been and ever will be as long as fallen humanity rules at the realm of human government. But what we need to do is understand that this is an opportunity to speak to them about real justice. This is an opportunity for us to talk to them not about social justice, but about the Lord's justice about Christ's justice. We need to remind them of the fact that God doesn't just convey and reveal justice. He is by nature just. It's it's who he is. And that he is a God of justice, 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 89 and verse 14. And we need to remind them of the fact that his day of justice is coming. Remember when Paul was preaching in Athens. And he said that God is now declaring, declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through what? A man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You want proof? The proof is he is risen. He's risen and he's coming Again, And Paul is saying, God has fixed a day in which he will judge this world in righteousness. You know, to the child of God, the resurrection of Christ is it's everything. Paul says, without the resurrection of Christ, we, we have nothing. We don't have a genuine faith. We have no object of faith. For the lost, the resurrection is somewhat terrifying because it means that Jesus is, in fact, alive, exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he is returning. And he will return with justice. Every time we open the Bible, we're seeing this twofold message of mercy in Christ and justice in Christ. Mercy, justice, mercy, justice, and it is all revealed in the person and work of Christ. And with this, brethren, I, I would just like to offer a few concluding thoughts and ideas. Number one, on a daily basis, flee to Christ in the scriptures. Go to Christ in the scriptures. Go to the word of God and understand that God has mercifully beautifully and perfectly revealed his glory through the person and work of Christ. Remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples and he directed them to the writings of the prophets stating that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into glory. And Luke reminds us of this in verse 27 and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Go to the word and behold how it is that I am in fact the revelation of God in his glory. That word explained comes from the word dermenuo. I don't know if that rings a bell in your mind and ear, but uh, dermenuo, the, we get the word hermeneutics from this word. Hermeneutics is really the science and study of how to translate or interpret scripture. So we talk about studying the Bible with hermeneutics, a hermeneutic that has at its center the, the, the intention and desire to discover the meaning of the text as God revealed it. Jesus gave the disciples here the hermeneutics of his glory and how it is that he is revealed in all of the scriptures. Brethren, we are to go to the scriptures and we're to see the glory of Christ there. For we see and behold the glory of the Father 
in the glory of Christ. He who is the exegesis of the Father has explained fully the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Secondly, let us be faithful to remind others regarding this Christocentric nature of God's justice. Again, we go to the word of God, we see the message of mercy in Christ, we see the message of justice in Christ. When Paul said, as he was preaching the gospel, and this was a gospel 101 message that he preached at Athens, but even in that gospel 101 message, he reminded his hearers of the fact that there is a coming day of justice and judgment. And notice this, he says that the Lord has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. It's fixed. It's set. It's on the calendar. We're not saying that we know when that day is. We, we don't. And for those who think they do, they need to repent of that matter, right? But what we're telling people is this. God isn't sitting in the heavens trying to figure this whole thing out. I wonder if I should pull this lever some, you know, you know they're really irritating me now. I'm going to pull this lever of judgment. I've had it with you people. No. God's justice, his judgment, his wrath is given with holiness, perfection, and it will be on time. On the very day that he has ordained. I don't know when that will be. You do not know when that will be. But mark this. That day is coming. And the one who will deliver this justice, this judgment, is the one who has been raised from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. He's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus is risen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. That's what he's saying. It's very simple. But brethren, remember this as well. And it's the same summary point that we came to last time. And it's something that I need to think of constantly. As we share this truth, we need to remind people of the fact that we too were blind. We were in darkness. This is one of the reasons why we're, we're going to conclude with, with the hymn in just a moment. Blessed Jesus at your word. Verse 2 says this. All our knowledge, sense, and sight lie in deepest darkness shrouded. He's saying, where were we before the Lord opened our eyes? Well, we were all in darkness. And then he says this, till your spirit breaks our night with the beams of truth unclouded. Perfect clarity, perfect purity in the revelation of God in his word through the person and work of Christ. You alone to God can win us. You must work all good within us. Finally, let me just say this. Next Lord's Day, we'll be observing the Lord's table. The centerpiece of that table is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, as we consider Christ, we must remember 
that this Christ-centered emphasis, again, is it's not to the exclusion of the Trinity. Being Christ-centered doesn't mean we ignore, deny, or subjugate, or any of these things, the Father and the Spirit. In fact, Paul says this, Through him, that is Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. I'm looking to Christ and I know that by his shed blood, I have this very access that I would not otherwise have because I bear his merit, not my own. And so now I have access through the spirit to the Father. And so even in my contemplation of the sufficiency of Christ, I ultimately come to the glory of the Godhead. But the Lord's table enjoins us to, bring, to contemplate Christ, to consider the wonderful work that he accomplished when he died on the cross, bore our sins, and the just judgment that we deserved because of those sins. And so may the Lord prepare our hearts for that Christ-centered focus next Lord's Day at the Lord's table. For now, let me ask you to take your song sheet out, out of your bulletins. Now, for those of you who are, this would be most people, uh, I think, um, we uh, had a chance to sing this hymn together, Blessed Jesus at Your Word. But we're going to sing it now corporately together as the body of Christ. Let me ask you all to stand and we'll sing Blessed Jesus at your word. <clears throat> Blessed Jesus at your word, we are gathered all to hear you. Let our hearts and souls be stirred now to see and love and fear you by your teaching sweet and holy drawn from earth to love you solely all our knowledge sense and sight lie in deepest darkness shrouded till your spirit our night with the beams of truth unclouded you alone to God can win us you must work all good within us glorious Lord yourself impart light of light from God proceed by your spirit's pleading hear the cry your people raises hear and bless our prayers and praises <coughs> and adoration grant that we trust and uh...
faces yonder. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the wonder of the revelation of Christ, his incarnation, his perfect life, his active and passive obedience, every aspect of the Savior in all that he said and did fully and sufficiently reveals your glory. And it is a disclosure of your glory, Lord, that we can see and behold and understand because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Father, we are a blessed people beyond measure. And we have been given the riches of your word. Lord, may we be sanctified in your truth. And may we call others to Christ, knowing and understanding that a day of justice is set and it is coming. And it is such a privilege for us to share with them and remind them of the fact that we too were in darkness until you opened the eyes of our hearts to see and to behold the glory of Christ and our need for him. So, Lord, send us out on a daily basis as your ambassadors, as your messengers, to share this privileged message of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, bless us in the remainder of our time together, our time of fellowship, the meal we'll enjoy in a moment. All these blessings that you give to us, Lord, they're from your hand. And so we praise you and thank you for them all. And we do so in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.